0: Well, thank you, worship team, for that amazing time of worship. I feel right at home here. Thank you, Dusty, Drew, and Wade, for the invitation to come and share God's word with you all. We, we love Northlake Bible Church. You are a family to us, and we at Countryside uh, just miss you. We still miss you, but we are overjoyed to see God at work among you. I don't, I don't know if you realize this. You are a part, a strategic part, of the most important activity taking place on the planet today and that is that Christ is building his church. You are doing something of eternal value and significance. In fact nothing else you do really matters at the end of the day. Nothing else matters except Christ and his church and he is doing that through you and among you and it brings us great joy just to see that and I love it that you not only love Christ's church in North Lake but you are about his mission among the nations. Christ is building his church here and among the nations, and so we are just so thankful to be a part of that and you partnering with us. As, as Desi mentioned, we are leaving uh, the country here in just a few weeks. I think it's three weeks from tomorrow, in fact. We'll be on a one-way ticket overseas, and there's uh, a lot to do when you move a family overseas, uh, sell a house and sell all your things. We um, were packing up and throwing away so many things. And then there's a little, there's, there, there are smaller things like, oh, I remember this weekend, I need to cancel my Amazon Prime membership. And so I, I, get, I don't want to be charged come August for another $150 for that. And I, I got online and told Amazon I was, I was leaving them. And they said, oh, no, don't, don't do that. You don't know what you're missing. We are so good. You, we're, we're the best thing ever. Um, in fact, Amazon uh, Prime Day is Is this Tuesday? And look at all the things you need. And so that kind of got my attention. I thought, yeah, maybe I do need this or that. And I started looking around and... And I realized, you know, every one of those advertisements on Amazon or any other company, you know, they only, they only highlight the good about their product, never the bad, never, never the risks. Like if this, they never say for that off-brand phone charger that I'm about to buy, you know, this will malfunction in about one month right when you need it to charge your phone to check in on, on your flight. They never tell you that. No, commercials never do that. What, what if a commercial chose to focus on all the risks and weaknesses of their product. What if, what if they said, buy this product and you'll be needy, hungry, tired, vulnerable, despised, rejected, and possibly even killed? Any takers? No, no, companies never do that. They hardly ever tell the whole truth, but scripture is starkly different. Jesus is starkly different. Jesus doesn't use gimmicks when speaking about following him and living on mission for him. If you've read your Bible for very long at all, you you know that the scriptures, they they don't soft sell the cost of discipleship. They don't sugarcoat the challenges involved in authentically following Christ. Jesus, in our passage today, will lay it all out for us. He'll, He'll share the good, and there's lots of good in living for him. He'll share the bad, and we'll even see some ugly involved. So I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, and today we are going to see Jesus send out his 12 apostles on the first short-term mission trip, and we'll read also about the death of John the Baptist. We're going to see the truth about following Jesus in a lost world. We're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this passage really, we're going to hope to glean several principles required for anyone who wants to live a life on mission. So, you follow along as I read from Mark chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place does not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. This is the account of the first Christian short-term mission, and we will see from this that there are several principles that can be applied to us. We are not the 12 apostles. We, we don't cast out demons. But I need you to know, just as Jesus sent these 12 out on mission, you know that you too have been sent by the Lord of glory on mission into this world. We are a kingdom of priests. Priests mediate between God and sinful man. We are, we are ambassadors for Christ, representing the king of kings to the Lord. You know these things. You have been sent on mission whether it's to Northlake or the nations that's our identity so I want to share with you just six principles from this passage for living a life on mission and that the first principle is that one of gospel clarity a disciple is called to witness with gospel clarity That really is the heart of the mission. Notice in verse 12, he says, They went out and preached that men should repent. That's very clear. If you don't hear anything else this morning, know that you must repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. If that hasn't happened, nothing else matters. Jesus has been clear about this from the beginning of his ministry. Many of you know Mark 1.15. The first thing Jesus is recorded to do in Mark, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's clear. There aren't multiple messages that we proclaim. You've got to get this message down. You know, Jesus was a preacher of the gospel Later in, in Mark, he says they had been in Capernaum and he had been healing many and they were flocking to him to want more of this, this, these healings and these blessings. And he says, no, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is why I came. In fact, this is what he prepared his apostles to do as well. Back in Mark 3.14, he says this. He said he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. I love that. This, this is really the rhythm of the Christian life. We're with him and then he sends us out to preach. Day by day, we commune with God, we're fed and we're nourished, we're equipped by him and then he sends us out. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. And we do so when we go out, we must preach with gospel clarity. So I want to ask you again, do you do you know the gospel well enough to share it clearly with others? Do you know the gospel well enough for your own heart to apply it to your own life? Do you know that you must call people to repentance that there's a holy God who's created you and owns you and you are to live for him? Yet we have rebelled against him in countless ways. We don't we're not just guilty on the fact that we've done committed a few sins we are sinners to the core. We don't just need healing, we need new life. We need forgiveness, and that forgiveness only comes through Christ. He is both God and sinless man. He died on the cross for our sins, not as an example, but as a substitute. He bore the wrath of God for us. And on the third, he was buried and on the third day he rose again. And by faith and repentance from him, You can be saved, not just forgiven, but changed and reconciled to a holy God now to no longer live for yourself, but him who died and rose again. If you don't know that, come talk to us right away. And if you do know that, I want you to be equipped further to talk to others. I think this fall you're going to have an evangelism class. Dusty, you're on the hook for it now. You have to offer the evangelism class. And when it's offered, take it. All of you, take it you won't regret building gospel clarity into your heart and into your conversations. Well, the second principle we see in our text is that not only should we witness with gospel clarity, but we must live with Christ-like compassion, Christ-like compassion. Verse 13 says, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Jesus had already done this throughout his ministry. He was a healer of the sick. He, he healed the lame. He, he raised the dead. I mean, he fed 5,000. He was a compassionate man because God is full of all grace and compassion and mercy. But here, you need to know that the, the miraculous healings that the apostles did, that was for them. We, we have not been given that, that authority or that power. This was to authenticate the apostles, as chosen, divinely chosen, and appointed men of God who spoke God's word. You know, with all the the, the confusion around gifts and signs, uh, really, in our community here, I want you to file a, a verse away. It's easy to remember, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. These, we, we, we want to live in accordance with the scriptures, but when you see an apostle Casting out demons you know that you need to know that was only for them and Paul says just that in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. he says he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles signs of a true apostle it's not Paul doesn't say in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 12 signs of a true believer. Or signs of a true evangelist. He says, "No, no, these were reserved only for apostles, because these signs authenticated the message, the messenger and the message. So you need to know that particular uh, hands-on gifting was only for the apostles. But there really is still a principle for us here. You know, th- these signs, they weren't just party tricks. They were loving people. They were caring for people. They were healing people. They were feeding people. These were acts of compassion. These were powerful acts of compassion that authenticated them as the people of God. I was reminded by the words of of our Lord in John 13, 35. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We ought to be marked by people of love that practically meet one another's needs and then that spills over into our communities. But again, don't get off balance here. While we care about people's physical needs, meeting those needs is not the gospel. Food doesn't keep people out of hell. You can have a great big buffet line for people and it won't save any of them. No, we want to we stick to the mission with gospel clarity. And then as we do, we live on mission with Christ-like compassion. And in doing so, we imitate our Lord. And we, we testify to a fallen world the impact His compassion has had on us. Well, in addition to gospel clarity and Christ-like compassion, we, as we live on mission, we are to proclaim Christ with divine authority divine authority verse 7 says he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits the lord of glory the king of kings says go and he didn't just tell them as you know from the great commission we are to go into all the nations and you don't you don't just happen to get to sudan for instance unless you say i'm going you don't just happen to be there. You need to have a, a mindset that you're sent on mission into this world. You know, you you all know that we have been sent by God Himself. What did Jesus say before He sent it into heaven in Acts 1:8? He says, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth." I want us to do away with a timid spirit that feels like we need permission to share the gospel with our neighbor. You have a divine mandate and authority of the King of Kings to go. Go at least next door. Do it with the confidence that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, has sent you. You are his messengers and you can speak with authority, Not your words, no, our words have no authority, but God's words are powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is where truth is found. We speak, when we speak from God's word, we speak with authority. You don't need permission to speak to someone about Christ. The King of kings has sent you. So we share with divine authority. Not only that, next, we must also live with humble Dependence, humble dependence. Verse eight outlines a list of things they couldn't take on their trip: no food, no bag, no money belt, etc. And then verse nine says, "When you get to your host home, stay there until it's time to leave." You know, as I've studied that verse this week, I've just been really impacted and encouraged by it. You know, first I want you to appreciate how hard this would have been for these men to go to a, a town that they weren't familiar with, that they don't have any context in, with nothing. I mean, it's hard enough for us to go across town if we forget our phone. They, had, they could bring nothing, no money belt, no bag, nothing. It was interesting how, how as I thought about, why, why did God put these restrictions on these men on that day? I'm sure, I'm sure it created a lot of hardship for them. Why did he prevent them from bringing anything on their trip? And I believe it was to teach them a humble dependence on the Lord to provide. Turn with me to Luke, Luke 22. I want you to see this. We're going to look at a couple of verses in Luke. Of course, what what we're seeing in Mark is the first short-term mission trip. Luke 22, we're we're at the end of Jesus' ministry, and now he's he's preparing to send them out on a more long-term, permanent mission. And in Luke 22, verse 35, Jesus says this, "And and he said to them, when I sent you out, When I sent you out without the money belt, that is the first time in Mark 6, when I sent you out without the money belt and bags and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. They lacked nothing. I was so moved by the goodness and provision of God here. They went out with nothing and they lacked nothing nothing, because what they had was the faithfulness of God. When you live on mission for the Lord, you can trust him. You can trust him for your provision. He is dependable. You can depend on him. The same God that cared for these men in that day cares for you. There has not been one day that I have lacked what I've needed. Praise be to God. And I'm personally relieved that this these, uh, these packing restrictions, as you might call them in Mark 6, they were actually temporary provisions. Look at the next verse in, in Luke. It says, he says, you liked nothing, did you know nothing? Verse 36, but now whoever, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. That's interesting. So, so what we see in Mark was a temporary restriction, but it was a gracious restriction. Do you, do you have that concept a, a gracious restriction you parents know that when you restrict when you say no to your children on certain things it's for their good God does the same for us he's conforming us to the image of his son and it's okay it's good when God says no for a season you know these these restrictions they're they're no longer in place but we we need to live on mission with a humble dependence um, he, he, he says in Mark 10 if you turn back rather to Mark 6 verse 10 he goes on to say, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. This is about the, the apostles when they enter a town and they, they find a host home. It could be that this host home, maybe it wasn't the best home in town. And then, you know, maybe a week or two goes by and somebody else with a nicer place invites them. Jesus said, no, no, don't, don't hop from house to house to upgrade your lifestyle and your living circumstances. Stay on mission. Be content with God's provision and stay on mission. This is, this is very, very practical for us. I mean, they, the, the apostles would have been very distracted from the mission if they were just constantly trying to upgrade their lifestyle. You and I will be very distracted from the Lord's work if we are preoccupied with just trying to climb the corporate ladder or what can I do to, to upgrade my home or buy the next house, get the next raise. Look, work hard, be successful. God may prosper you, but stay on mission and be content with what he's provided and humbly depend on him. So, not only are we to live on mission with a humble dependence on the Lord, next we find that we are to witness with a sober perspective. A sober perspective. Verse 11 of Mark 6 says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them as the apostles preach the gospel you understand that while some may have accepted their message many many in that day would have rejected it and if you share the gospel for any amount of time here you know rejection is pretty much the norm but what how are you supposed to respond in that case walk away with your tail beneath your legs so to speak no you need to give your listener a sober warning You you need to have a, a sober perspective yourself about the eternity of men and women's souls. And you need to leave people with that same warning and perspective. You see, to shake the dust off your feet after someone had rejected you. In that day, the Jews would have done that when they entered a Gentile land and it it made them unclean, so to speak. And as they left that land, they would shake the dust off their feet to say, this is a, a pagan place full of pagan people who are going to suffer eternity in hell. Interestingly, Paul and Barnabas, when they went on their first missionary journey and were rejected in Acts, they did the same thing. They were rejected this time By the Jews, not by Gentiles, but by the Jews. They shook the dust off their feet and they moved on. And it was a testimony against unbelieving Jews to say, you're no different than unbelieving Gentiles and you will face the same fate that they do. It's a sober reminder that the rejection of Christ is a rejection of God and an invitation for his wrath. I, was, I heard a story this, uh, this week about a, a young man who grew up in a small village in Europe and his mother took him to London for the first time to see such a big city sprawling with so many people and, and as they observed um, all that was going on and all the people there, his mother, they were walking down the street and suddenly he, she realized her, her teenage son was no longer with her and so she turned back and looked around the corner and he had stepped off to an alley and sat down and she found him sitting there weeping. She said, what, son, What? what's happened? What's wrong? And he said, mother, as I encountered these masses of people, I know what their fate is. These people don't know the Lord. They're perishing. And it's caused me to weep. This young man had an eternal, sober perspective about the reality of hell And if we're going to live a life on mission, we must have that same perspective. Well, not only should we have a sober perspective, we must also live on mission through an abiding presence with Christ. An abiding presence with Christ. Skip down to Mark 6.30. Mark 6.30. This is now at the end of their mission. The apostles, it says, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves, that is, by themselves with Jesus. So after being sent out on mission, on this short term mission, with little provision in the face of constant opposition, Christ warmly invites them back to abide with him. He knew his people needed rest. And when you live on mission for Christ in your community, wear yourself out for him and come back and abide in Christ. And that's what I said earlier. He brought his disciples with him that they may, he may send them out to preach, they needed his provision, the rest and encouragement that only comes from fellowship with him. You know, as we, as we seek to live for Christ and we seek to live on mission, and you, it's so busy here as you set up and tear down week after week, you do it in the rain, you're going to wear yourself out. Abide in Christ. Don't, don't, don't replace the importance of ministry or missions above your time with the lord it's essential that you abide in him and i must point out here that not only did they find rest by abiding with christ by communion with him verse 30 says that they'll give an account and i want to remind you that we will all give an account of how we've how we've stewarded the great treasure of the gospel given to us verse 30 says they reported to him all that they had done and taught We will give a report. We will give an account. So these principles we've seen for living a life on mission are many. A disciple, again, is called to witness with gospel clarity, to serve with Christ-like compassion, to proclaim him with divine authority, and to live with a humble dependence on him, to always maintain a sober perspective, an eternal perspective And to do it all through the abiding presence of Christ. Now you likely noticed that I skipped a a large portion of scripture. We started with uh, sending out the twelve and then we had to skip many verses to hear how it all wrapped up. What I skipped was an account of John the Baptist from verses 14 through 29. I'm going to read that account now and then we're going to um, see how Mark intends us to take this. Verse 14, Mark 6 verse 14 says... Now King Herod, or King yes, excuse me, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah, and others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed, And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with her in haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. And immediately the king sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head He went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a terrible story. The forerunner of the Messiah gets his head chopped off. So much for the prosperity gospel. The Herod, the Herod, just by way of background in this story, he's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one that tried to kill Jesus when the, when the wise men came and said, Who, where is he that's been born the king of the Jews? And Herod tried to kill baby Jesus in Bethlehem. He couldn't find him. And so what did he do? He, he had all the boys two and under in Bethlehem murdered. Well, this Herod, his son, is really no better than his father. And I assume you notice that he married his sister-in-law. And that's ultimately what got John the Baptist killed. Interestingly, in Mark, this is, this is the only story where Jesus is not the main character. You know, what, what's Mark doing here? What, why does he interrupt the, the story of the, the short-term mission with this story of John the Baptist and then return to conclude the short-term mission? One of the uh, interesting literary features in mark is something called like a mark Ann sandwich imagine again just several times in mark six or seven times he starts a story he interrupts that story with another story and then he finishes the first so it's story a insert story b finish story a it's a sandwich what's the use of the sandwich well, typically, the middle story, the sandwich story, is served to, to compare or contrast, highlight, and illustrate something taught in the outer story, in the original story. And so that's what is happening here. The 12, you need to know, were not the first Christian missionaries, John was. And what Mark is doing here is he teaches us principles for living on mission for Christ. He wants to highlight in graphic detail what else living on mission for Jesus could entail. Again, John was the first missionary. He prepared the way for the Lord, and he was martyred for it. I've given you several principles for living on mission. You must witness with gospel clarity and Christ-like compassion, etc. Now to that list, you can add one final principle That is, a disciple is called to live on mission with a martyr's mindset. A martyr's mindset. That's what John the Baptist had. He feared God and not man. He was willing to sacrifice everything in order to remain faithful to his Lord. Now, I don't mean John had a a death wish, and I certainly don't mean he had a victim mentality. But what I do mean is he was so committed to Christ and his mission that death itself would not stop him. I remind you, Jesus said about John, he said, Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And John's greatness wasn't first rooted in his courage. No, it was rooted in his love and his commitment to his Savior. And that love that he he had for the Lord radically impacted his life and ministry. This passage about John, it, it, it highlights a few things that I, I, want us, I just want us to spend a few minutes considering. I'd like you to see, first of all, that John was a righteous and holy man. As we live on mission for Christ with a martyr's mindset, I, I want to add to that. You, you need, I want you to realize that John was a righteous and holy man. Verse 20, Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. If we're going to live on mission for Christ, if we're going to be his ambassadors, loved ones, Live an upright and holy life. If we're gonna proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, live in the light as children of the light. It would be a complete contradiction and possibly a waste of time to call someone to, to the Lord, to call someone to repentance and to call someone to treasure Christ and then live in a way that that wasn't even true for you, to live in a way that's really no different than the world. See, John was the real deal. He was a righteous and holy man because he loved his Savior. And that had a marvelous impact on his life and his message. And it impacted the way people received him. You see verse 20, Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. That got got an attention. John's life, his holy life, um, got the attention of those who he spoke to. Now let's consider John's message. What was his message? Well, like before, it was a message of repentance. We've already seen that. That's how John began his ministry. He was he preceded the Lord, and he said, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." That was Jesus. That was John's message. Look at verse eighteen. He got specific. He said John had been saying to Herod, "It is not lawful." For you to have your brother's wife. John got specific with Herod about his need for repentance. He didn't speak in generalities about turning from sin. That has has not proven effective in my life, nor would it will will in yours to just generally repent. You have to be specific about the sins that beset you. James says that we all have particular lusts and sins for each of us, and it's those that we need to focus on and repent of. And John highlighted Herod's blatant sin. Luke actually tells us that John not only called him out for his illegal marriage, Luke tells us he he called him out for all the wicked things which Herod had done. Again, John, John told Herod, You must repent of these particular sins. He was very specific with them. But not only did John preach a message of repentance, he preached directly directly you saw that already but I want to highlight it again for you here verse 18 it says he had been saying to Herod John preached directly to Herod he didn't put it on a blog he wasn't on a podcast this wasn't even a public message he got one-on-one with Herod and he called him out for his sins and called him to repentance when we share the gospel with others we need to get specific with them one-on-one, face-to-face, and speak directly. But what stands out above all of this for me is that John also preached courageously, courageously. He looked Herod right in the face, and he said, you can't have her. That took courage. That took guts. He knew Herod could have his head chopped off And the fear of man did not stop John from preaching truth. And that's why I'm calling this a martyr's mindset. Proclaiming Christ faithfully in a fallen world requires a martyr's mindset. One in which you do not fear men, you do not fear death, but fear God. This mindset of John enabled him to preach repentance both directly and courageously. This wasn't friendship evangelism. This wasn't a seeker-sensitive model, to be sure. No, Mark uses John's story to let us know what proclaiming Christ in a fallen world could look like. When you speak with this sort of clarity, you need to know it may cost you everything. Mark wants you to know that. Jesus wants you to know that. In fact, turn turn to Matthew 10 for me. I want you to see this. It's very interesting. Matthew 10... Matthew gives an account of Jesus sending out the 12. And instead of following in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 5, instead of following the commissioning of the 12 on a short term mission with the story of the John the Baptist, he, d- he does something different. So, Matthew 10, 5, this is, this is Jesus sending out the 12 again. Do not, he says, The twelve, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preaching, say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper or money belts for your bag or for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or staff, etc., etc. So he's He's sending out the 12, just like we've already seen. But now skip down to verse 16. Notice what he says and said. We're not not talking about John the Baptist here. We're continuing the words of Jesus. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you. In their synagogues, and you will even be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Skip to verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see what happened here? So after the instructions for the short-term mission, Matthew doesn't tell the story of John the Baptist. Instead, he continues with the explicit words of Christ, which warn about the dangers of living on mission for him. So what Matthew does with the explicit words of Christ, Mark does through through the insertion of the story about John the Baptist. That's the point of the sandwich. Jesus wants his followers to know that to live on mission with him requires a martyr's mindset. John was martyred for Christ because he had that mindset. Where does that mindset come from? Where does that courage come from? It only comes from treasuring Christ. You and I will continue to fear man Or fear death, as long as we have, until and unless we learn a godly fear of of Christ, and to find Him and Him alone as our greatest joy and treasure. John John the Baptist actually began his life and ministry rejoicing over his Savior. A little Bible trivia for you: the first time John rejoiced over his Savior was in his mother's womb. You remember that in Luke 1. Pregnant Elizabeth was there and pregnant Mary comes in and John leapt for joy, it says, when when he saw his Savior. And he continued his ministry that way. John 3, he says, John the Baptist says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom whom stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice And then John says, so this joy of mine has been made full. John found his greatest joy not in things of this world, but in Christ and Christ alone. He loved seeing Christ. He loved hearing Christ. He loved witnessing the exaltation of Christ. And when people started flocking to Jesus instead of John, he said, my joy has been made full. What's the last time you were just really excited about something? You were really jazzed up about something that happened in your life. Did Jesus have anything to do with that? Did did the advancement of his kingdom have anything to do with your joy? If you're finding greater joy in things of this world, you will be sorely disappointed. Find your joy in Christ and his kingdom. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. John found joy in Christ because Christ was his treasure. You know, Paul Paul had that same mindset. People that live for Christ have... uh, nobody, nobody, Nobody risks their life. Nobody commits their life to Christ for something that's not of great value. Listen to how Paul describes the value of Christ in Philippians 3. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection from the dead. That is the great Christian hope secured for us. John knew this. It freed him to take risks for Christ. As he sat in that jail cell, and the executioner came his way with the axe in his hand. John knew that glory awaited him. He had prepared the way for the Lord and now the Lord was preparing an eternal place for him. Do you have that same sort of mindset? Is Christ your treasure? Are you you so secure in him that you're free to take risks for his kingdom? I suspect most of this talk about Suffering and death, I mean, it seems pretty foreign to us. I mean, no, none of us have, ex- have even come close to experiencing that. But you know, the New Testament presents suffering as normative for the Christian life. And I acknowledge we live in a unique time and place here with great freedoms. But I can't help but just ask myself Am I playing it too safe? Am I being too timid? What's keeping me from knocking on my neighbor's door? Loved ones, Jesus didn't die on the cross to keep you safe in this life. He died to keep you safe in the next. He he didn't die so that you could avoid death. He died so that you could face death with hope and courage. He took the wrath of God you and I deserve so we could be secure forever. What else could we ask for? What else are we looking for? Give your life away now for, and have Christ forever. John was willing to lose his head for Christ. What are we willing to lose? Maybe a friendship? A promotion? A raise? Your reputation? Your reputation among people that don't really matter, by the way? What are you willing to lose? What's holding you back from living Courageously for Christ. Remember the words of our Lord. I'll close here. If anyone, this is Mark 8, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. No false marketing here. Following Christ will cost you everything, but he's worth it. Take up your cross daily. Die to yourself daily and follow him in obedience. This path of obedience and living a life on mission is the greatest life that you and I have been called to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor during the time of Hitler. He was an outspoken critic, and Nazi of the, uh, critic of the Nazi regime and dictatorship and a critic of the persecution of the Jews. And as a result of his courage to speak out, he was imprisoned in 1943. And he was executed by hanging... In April, on April 9th of 1945. That was less than a week before the U.S. forces came and liberated that concentration camp. His outspoken commitment to Christ cost him his life. But he didn't die, that, he didn't die at the gallows. He died the day he decided to follow Christ. That's why he would write years earlier, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. May we live a life on mission with that same mindset. Father in heaven, you are good and you do good. We ask, Lord, that you would, by any means possible, use us to advance your name and your reputation, both in North Lake and among the nations, free us from the fear of man, equip us to share the gospel with clarity. Help us to depend on you for all things and help us to abide in Christ as we do, Lord Jesus. We we praise you, we worship you, you are worthy of our life and worship, and we ask, Lord that you work in our hearts to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.